Welcome to episode 5 of The Network Effect, hosted by Access Fintech. On today's episode, we have our very own Pardeep Castles and Peter Tomlinson from AFME, and they have a candid conversation about T plus 1. They dissect the key findings of AFME's recent paper, but first they dive into the coming regulations across different regions and consider how ready the industry is. Obviously, the team at AFME have been working really, really hard on assessing the impact of T1 for a while now. And we'll come on to Europe and what's happening um, in the home nations shortly. But obviously, in May 2024, we're going to see the US, Canada, Mexico, and potentially some other Central American countries move to a T1 cycle. How prepared do you think the AFME membership are for that change at the moment? It's a good question. Um... So as you know, our, our cousins in America, SIFMA, have been sort of in the lead. They've been doing an amazing job at keeping the industry you know, on the path towards May 2024. All, all the noises we hear from from the states are that, that, that the date is the date. It's not going to change. The industry is, you know, throwing everything at being ready for that date. So in answer to, you know, readiness, I think everyone will have to be ready for that date. Um, you know, I think... But the main challenges have been surfaced for quite a while. I think issues around impacts on securities lending processes, impact on FX transactions, um, you know, the time zone difference and, and how the allocation and confirmation process can be completed within those new timeframes by, you know, non-domestic uh, participants these are sort of well-known challenges and and i think you know the industry collectively is is working towards uh working towards solutions i would say that from an access fintech perspective when we're speaking to the market at the minute i'm seeing an interesting approach to readiness um so we have some organizations who are telling us that they're ready the switch could be flicked tomorrow and everything's going to be fine um, and then I was actually speaking at a conference a few weeks ago where 34% of the respondents in a survey in the room during the panel said that they either hadn't started preparing or were just starting to prepare. Um, and that was in London. Is that something that you think we should be worried about? Uh, yes, that sounds a bit worrying. I guess it depends. You know, I think with every sort of major project of this nature, you see, I think the dividing line is often people sort of say buy side versus sell side but really it's about size and sophistication of the institution if that's not kind of rude rude way to put it no i would yeah i would have put it in a much ruder way i think <laughs> so uh, no that's perfect because definitely agree i think the smaller the smaller houses and the ones who are maybe less technologically advanced are potentially just not as yeah. on top of this as their larger cousins? I think that there's two sort of ways of looking at this. You've got a, a technical readiness point, and that's obviously where the firms who started earlier are, are sort of further along that journey. And they're moving on actually to looking at the knock-on impacts apart from the actual you know, technical process of settling the transactions on time and meeting the allocation confirmation requirements. They're looking at the wider ecosystem impacts, as I say, you know, I think we all know that the, the kind of the system is kind of fragile. You poke one thing and other things start start moving around. So the, the concerns that we hear from, that I'm hearing from larger institutions are typically around, as I say, these associated processes like FX, uh, securities lending, 
impact, potential impacts on market liquidity. Um, maybe one other thing to add from an AFME perspective and where I think we can add value or we'll need to do further work with our members is in kind of scoping out some of the edge case scenarios. So securities which are, you know, traded and settled on, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, ETFs, um, Crest depository in, uh, instruments, for example, you know, working out those edge cases, what's what should be the market convention or what is the regulatory requirement in each of those instances. And are your membership, um, obviously some of them will have branches in the US um, and in the APEC region. I guess one of the other patterns that I've seen in the, the preparation for T1 in North and Central America is that the North Americans are obviously all over it. The Europeans are kind of chasing them. But we're still speaking to organizations out in Asia who really don't seem particularly engaged. And I think in terms of time zone impact and crush, that's where we're going to be hardest hit. Are you hearing similar from your membership? Are you in contact with any market bodies in that region to, to try and provide support? So we have another cousin uh, in, in Asia. A big family. <laughs> exactly. Uh, ASIFMA. So we, we, of course, are engaged with them and they're engaged with, with SIFMA as well in terms of, um, you know, looking at the impact. But as you say, the time zone challenges are even more pronounced for, for those further east. And I think actually... You know, one of the lessons to be learned from the US when we kind of come to talking about this in Europe is how do we make sure that non-domestic market participants are engaged at an early stage of a process and the impacts on them are sort of considered and, and taken into account. So Pete, obviously just having referenced the European conversation as well, let's move into that territory a little bit. What work are your membership doing at the minute in relation to the potential change to a T1 cycle, I guess, both in the UK and across continental Europe? I don't know if you want to tackle those separately. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's prob- probably best. Although I think, you know, the first point to make maybe is that, you know, we would like them to be tackled simultaneously. I think that there are certainly, um, you know, benefits to a, a highly coordinated approach across you know, everyone within the geographical European region, within geographical Europe, um, you know, similar to what we're seeing in North America, Central America, there is that high degree of coordination. Because they're trading most actively with each other, right? Exactly. So it makes sense. And, and I think just the way that, you know, firms are aligned, having multiple implementation dates across like a wide range lengthens the the sort of project time for these firms and also creates complexities in in the scope um you know if you have as you say you have sort of more trading across across borders in within the region you have instruments traded and settled in both um you know instruments with underlyings that straddle both or multiple jurisdictions so again kind of having having alignment in terms of implementation timelines means you can have a simpler scope of implementation and you kind of have to think a bit less about these edge cases um so in terms of what we're doing with our membership obviously the, the priority on the the european side now is responding to esma's call for evidence um which for which responses are due by the 15th of december this year uh, and we're expecting on the back of that ESMA to report to to 
the commission and provide their cost-benefit analysis by kind of mid-2024. So Why are we, right? Well, yes and no, because I think their mandate, you know, is 12 months from uh, the entry into force of the CSDR refit, which has not yet entered into force. So they have a longer timeline, but I think recognizing what's happening in other places, including the UK, you know, there's a there's a um, desire from the European authorities to to kind of accelerate the the conversation uh, in the EU as well. So, which feels desired, right? So when we're speaking to organisations at the minute um, and talking to them about T1, people in the main seem to have one eye on what's happening in North America and the other very much on how quickly is this mm-hmm. going to take effect in, in Europe. So for globally active institutional investors, the sort of desirable end state is to have those all of those major jurisdictions aligned on T plus one. That simplifies many of their processes. The sort of game theory side of this for UK and Europe is finding the balance between how long you live with that period of misalignment with the US versus how long you, you know, or potentially rushing the implementation timeline here and doing it in a uncoordinated way, not supported by the necessary market changes that we think are required to sort of do this in a way which doesn't, you know, doesn't end up creating new risks, new inefficiencies and new costs in, in the market. So that you have that sort of balancing act, you have that alignment question, US versus Europe as a whole, and then you have that alignment question within geographical Europe as well, you know, picking you know, picking the best approach which balances those different considerations. Because I guess up until now, it seems that we're both on His Majesty's Treasury Task Force for the UK um, and then there's obviously the AFME conversations that you're spearheading as well. And I guess up until this point, it feels like there's been appetite to move the UK fairly rapidly behind the US and Canada. But I believe that the lead times that were being cited for Europe previously were significantly longer. So do you think this is going to require the UK to slow down or Europe to speed up? I think the question for the UK will be what is the benefit of moving ahead of the eu what you know what does that does that bring anything tangible in terms of uh, you know increased uh attractiveness of uk markets or does it just create problems for the major uk market participants a really fair question and i guess the misalignment what the thought that's come to mind there is that our first step in not being aligned with um the rest of the the european geographical region was to opt out of CSDR ultimately, right? So the concern is that there's a continuation of that. And I guess from a CSDR perspective, people were quite relieved, right? It wasn't the most fun regulation to implement. Um, But in this particular scenario, it doesn't feel like the benefit would be so significant as to cause that amount of disruption. Yeah, absolutely. I think as as I kind of said earlier, you're creating additional complexities in things like the scope. You're lengthening the implementation projects for for all of the firms affected by by kind of both uh, both transitions. So it, it's definitely something that you know we're encouraging UK and EU authorities to to sort of have coordination on. 
collaboration is key always absolutely yeah but i guess the catchphrase (laughs) but i guess this the summary is uk to fall back and instead of rush ahead so Pete AFME recently published a paper in partnership with Deloitte entitled Improving the Settlement Efficiency Landscape in Europe. As an aside, I do think it would be much better branded as Pete's AFME paper, which is what I call it internally. Um, But really, really interesting documentation. We were delighted to be asked to to support by providing some data to that as well, um, along with, I think, other partners, including DTCC. What do you think are the most interesting findings that have come out of that piece of work? I think, well, firstly, thanks very much. Um, I think calling it Pete's paper, you know, <laughs> there was definitely a lot of support from other other AFME staff members, Deloitte, of course, you guys and the other data contributors, and then the membership. And well done to all of them as well. Thank, thanks, <laughs> Um The most interesting findings. So I think what was you know, particularly resonated with me as as we went through the paper was really the importance of kind of pre-settlement matching processes in terms of making that link into timely and accurate settlement. Um, one of the, the stats I think that came through from, from Access Fintech was that, you know, in Europe, sort of over 3% of transactions, um, there was some kind of mismatch on PSET, place of settlement, other jurisdictions like uh, North America, that's kind of way below 1%. So, you know, 3%, 3% isn't massive, but in comparison to, you know, 3% of all transactions compared to a, a fraction of percent, it's a lot, right? And that's a uniquely European problem, I would say. You know, other markets like the US, you kind of, you pretty much know where a trade is going to settle. It's going through DTCC, European markets. Obviously, we have multiple CSDs, which... There are many advantages too, but in terms of the complexity of the post-trade ecosystem, it's this additional, very important matching field, which kind of creates a whole lot of, you know, additional uh, complexity, additional issues to uh, to manage, and you know, it's it's pretty obvious that 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 field needs to be part of the, the trade level matching. It's an interesting one, right? So I remember um, in my career back working for an outsourced middle office provider, seeing those PSET issues come up. And this is the first time I think that market-wide we've been able to put a number against it Mm -hmm. and say this is how often they're coming up. There are so many different factors that seem to feed into that. It can be asset managers not having actually even communicated their preferred place of settlement um, to their custodians, to their brokers, or they change their mind and don't let people know I'm aware of global custodians who perform sweeps, so they'll move holdings out of um, a Euroclear or a Clearstream into domestic markets where it's cheaper to retain them, and their asset managers seem to not always be aware that that sort of stuff is going on. So I'm, I'm so familiar with the different environments in which that pops up and becomes a problem. And it feeds into the sort of inventory management totally. issues as well, because as you say, if you, if you sort of agreeing on a trade in one market or one CSD rather and the position is is held elsewhere you know affecting that that sort of realignment on trade day becomes really problematic um but problematic because the time frames to do that are shortening right and I think historically there obviously is a a PSET field and swift messaging 
other market industry standard messaging is available. Um, but it doesn't seem to have been ever really enforced. Organizations have been reluctant to pay to make the changes that they need to make because it's not a mandatory field. So I know that at Access Fintech, we've turned it into part of our minimum data set, which is how we were able to get that stat to you. Um, but then what I would love to be able to do is tie it back into the place of safekeeping because that gives you that opportunity to flush out the inventory issue. I speak to a lot of people who don't even know what a PC is. So I think there's maybe market knowledge sharing that needs to be done in that space to help organizations understand just why this is so important in Europe. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's there's a there's definitely a school of thought that, you know, one of the the benefits of potentially shortening the settlement cycle will be to let's say increase the uh the urgency of you know resolving issues like this increasing market awareness of issues like this and this becomes part of that solution towards uh achieving c plus one in a way which as i say doesn't ultimately result in an increase in um in settlement fails and in costs and inefficiencies in, in European markets. Yeah, because it feels like something that should be fixable. Mm-hmm. And we're, like, certainly we're at a point where I've walked into clients' offices and said, with this custodian, you have a problem with like your Spanish PSET. And if you were to fix this, that's 70 less trades a day that you would have to be touching and manually amending and risking failure with. Um, so behavioral comes into it as well as like the tech side of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually one of the other sort of key learnings of the paper is that, you know, we're not, we're not really talking about anything particularly radical. We're not proposing that the whole sort of ecosystem needs to be ripped out and replaced with DLT. These, we're sort of moving into the actionable, practical recommendations to, to make, you know, um, to make tangible progress, um, so maybe, you know, one of the other data providers or case studies from the paper was Euroclear Sweden, um, who have improved their settlement efficiency rate from 85% to 96% That's over the amazing. last... amazing. It, it's it's <laughs> massive, right? Um, in two and a half years. And like I say, they haven't done anything radical to achieve that. They've increased the availability of partial settlement and they've extended the DVP cutoff. That's pretty much it. Um, obviously, CSDR penalties coming in to replace their previous penalties regime has an impact as well. So you can't really sort of attribute the increase to each specific change. But as a sort of, yeah, they haven't rebuilt anything. They've made, you know, incremental improvements and and the results are, are clear to see. So I think, you know, more of the same, more action, less talking is is really what we're we're calling for so you mentioned less action we're talking i enjoy um even though i talk a lot um but you mentioned csdr there and i guess for me that's potentially one of the points of concern because if the introduction of csdr didn't i'm going to use the word force but i really mean strongly encourage organizations to implement this type of achievable change why will t plus one lead to those changes being introduced i think well, I think we are seeing some positive impacts from the CSDR penalties regime as well. It's It wasn't, you know, a step change overnight. Um, I think actually work, you know, work was done in advance of February 2022 and impacts were felt there. But sort of even measuring from, you know, late 2021 to to now, particularly in equities, which we know have the highest penalty rate, there has been a, 
a noticeable decline in, in settlement fails according to ESMA's own data. Interesting, because their first declaration was that the fail rates overall ac- across the CSDR and Patched Universe had actually increased in that first 12 months, right? Yeah, so I think I think things have moved on uh, since the first 12 months a bit. I think also what we have to consider is that, you know, if you're taking security settlement as a whole, including all asset classes, um, the vast majority of the value of settlements is in, uh, you know, government debt instruments, which have a fairly low and stable fail rate of, I think, around 4%. Um, so, you know, improvements to, to asset classes, which have higher fail rate, but a lower, make up a lower sort of value of the overall uh, puzzle, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually impact that bottom line that much. But when you sort of drill a layer deeper into the data, I think there are definitely some, some positive signs there. That's good. A relief. Absolutely. (laughs) After all that work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What are the next steps um, following the publication of the paper? What's the response been? We've had a great response to the paper. I think, you know, it's in some ways, as we've all of these things, it's, it's, has an educational aspect to it. I think it it does do a good job of laying out the kind of current state of the ecosystem and where the problems lie. As you say, uh, we've sort of committed to to action, um, and we very we were very conscious to frame our recommendations or our next steps, our, our roadmap around AFMI led actions, AFMI member led actions. Um, I think we're aware that actually progress requires input from all types of stakeholders. So we're definitely keen to keep soliciting views from, you know, other constituencies like the buy side, like the market infrastructures and in, in their view of, of, you know, what can be done to, to improve things. But, you know, the back of our paper does set out our, our sort of plan for 2024, some 10 or so items and, and tangible things for, for us to take forward with our members. And that wraps up another insightful episode on the network effect. A big thank you to Pardeep Castles and Peter Tomlinson for sharing their expertise with us today. For more captivating discussions on finance and industry insights, be sure to catch our other episodes available on all major platforms. Until next time, this is the network effect. Stay informed, stay connected and stay ahead in the dynamic world of finance.